We continue tonight in our series, Theology for Life, with a focus on God the Son. I appreciate the last message that Brother Bernard was able to bring on God the Father. We're still in some foundational issues of theology, and then we're going to branch out from there as we go forward. But what I want to do tonight is we get our minds thinking about God the Son. Let's think about three specific passages of Scripture. I want to read them, let the Word speak for itself. The first being in Romans chapter 1, the second being in the book of Ephesians, and then the third in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 1, and I want to read the introduction from the Apostle Paul, particularly as it relates to God the Son, to Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll pick up reading here in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now Colossians chapter 1. He says, For this reason, in verse 9, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now the hymn in praise of the centrality of Christ, beginning in verse 15. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the church, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." When we speak of God the Son, the term that is typically used in theology is Christology. Christology is a word that means anointed one or the study of the anointed one with Christ as the anointed Messiah. So when we say Christology, we're referring to the study of Christ. And it includes the preexistence of Christ the Old Testament prophecies about him, his humanity, his deity, his incarnation, as well as the issue of his temptations and sinlessness, which I think you studied, at least some of you did, in Bible fellowship, and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and then ultimately his return and his role in the world. So what I want to do tonight is look at an outline of that. It's a lot to take in in one session, but we're going to attempt to do it and try to get an understanding of who Christ is and the significance of why this framework really matters for our theology. And we start with the eternality of Christ, meaning that there's never been a time when he was not. There's never been a point at any point in which Christ was not in existence. John says that the word became flesh in John chapter 1. And he says that he came to dwell among us. So what he infers there is that he was already in existence. Jesus himself suggested his preexistence, his eternality, and some of the things that he said. Uh, One prominent statement that he made was before Abraham was I am. Of course, wrapping up his eternality and also his deity as a part of the triune Godhead. Paul also, in referring to Christ as the last Adam, implies his preexistence since the Jews often held that both Adam and Moses were, though that was not the case. He was making the point that there was never a time when Christ was not. Now, this matters because it helps us understand that we're not just dealing with an ethical teacher here. We're not just dealing with 
someone who proclaimed themselves to be the Son of God or who proclaimed themselves to be the Messiah. We are speaking of the one who has always been, who was active in creation, the one who uh, was uh, and now even holds all things together. So his eternality is significant in helping us understand who he is. But the prophecies about Christ are also incredibly important. And there are some 300 or more prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, those prophecies point us to who God proclaimed him to be. So some of the familiar ones would be his birth was prophesied, his uh, lineage of the line that he came from, the place of his birth was specifically referenced in the Old Testament. Uh, His ministry of compassion and also judgment was prophesied uh, that he would be the one who would function as prophet, priest, and king is a theme that rises up in the scripture, that he would be betrayed and sold out is also seen in the pages of the Old Testament, that he would die a violent death when you look at Isaiah 53, for example, for telling what was going to happen to the suffering servant, that he would be raised from the dead and that he would be exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So the appearance of Jesus on the earth was simply a confirmation of all that had been promised. If you think about this just from a logical, apologetic kind of a standpoint, there are far too many prophecies about Christ that were then fulfilled in Christ to have been happenstance or to have just been uh, some type of construct of man or to be some idea that people just put together and all of a sudden tried to make it what they wanted it to be. It's far too complex over a long period of time for it all to come together in one person would be to the point of absurdity unless it was in fact something that God has done. His eternal reign and fulfillment of David's promise, the promise that God would always have his king on the throne, is also prophesied in the Old Testament. But then the humanity of Christ is, is essential to our understanding as well, because had he remained as the eternal word, then we would not have redemption. So God, in eternity past, in his wisdom and his providence and his sovereignty, determined the point in time at which his son would take on flesh and enter into this world. A Galatians 4, 4 moment. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And the humanity of Jesus was necessary because he would come as the redeemer. And had he not come as the redeemer, it would have not satisfied what God's requirement was for salvation. So Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. That was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prediction in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. From an even more close-in theological point of view, John says that the eternal and the divine word became flesh and that God tabernacled among us. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the doctrine of the incarnation means that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. That's a miraculous thing to even think of that and what that means. 
that Jesus is both undiminished deity, united with perfect humanity, and permanently so, unchanging forever. One person, two natures, and forever so. And this is something people don't think through sometimes. They think about Jesus in their mind's eye, walking on the earth, teaching, healing, ministering, doing what Jesus did. But they don't realize that when Christ was crucified and raised and ascended back into heaven, he went back to heaven as the God-man, eternally. The, The one who was deity and is deity, but who also was humanity, and he remained so forever. And what he did was for us. So God became man in order to redeem his creation and to rule over it, to fulfill the covenant that God had promised. Remember, God's a covenant-giving and a covenant-keeping God. He's the one who will ultimately bring all of creation into submission to God the Father. So when you look at the chaos in the world and the unsettledness and what seems like disarray and seems like it's just out of control, just settle down, rest easy, because God's going to bring it all together in his Son. And he will do so eternally. He will do so in a new heaven and a new earth. And he will rule and reign over that forever. When we think about the humanity of Jesus, of course, he had human names. Jesus as Savior, referred to as the Son of David, also the Son of Man, which was his favorite designation for himself. He experienced the things that any human being would experience. He had a body. He spoke human language that people could understand. He interacted with others. He he ate. He experienced life on this planet like we do. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tempted just as we are, yet he didn't succumb to it. And he lived and he died. So the humanity of Jesus is very important for us to understand and get in our mind's eye to understand redemption, which we'll get to here in just a few moments. But then what about the deity of Christ? Well, John says that he was the divine being or God, the very form of God is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He's referred to in Titus chapter 2 as our great God and Savior. He said, I and my Father are one, uh, Hebrews, where he in chapter one, where he is exalted as the eternal God, is a reference also to his deity. He accepted worship from people, uh, even though sometimes that's one of the things that's denied by people that try to say Jesus Christ is someone other than what he is. And he is exalted as God. And there's been a lot of false teachings about the dual nature of Christ throughout the ages. The early church struggled with it from the outset. And today those, those false teachings still uh, have feet and there are many who deny certain aspects of who Jesus is. Let me just give you a few examples of some historical ones. One were the Ebionites who denied the divine nature of Christ, that he only received the spirit at his baptism is what they taught. Also, the Arians, 
uh, who present-day Jehovah's Witnesses also claim the same thing, that Jesus is the first and the highest created being, but he is not the eternal God. The Gnostics affirm that Jesus only appeared in a human form and denied that he truly had a human nature. Nestorius denied the union of the divine and the human natures in one person. Uh, Eutychianism denied any real distinction in Christ's nature at all, that the human nature was engulfed in the divine nature, resulting in what they called a third nature. So there's been all sorts of confusion from the beginning of the early church. Apollinarius denied a facet of Jesus' humanity also, that he didn't have a human spirit, that he was something altogether different. And finally, there's been a lot of attempts to try to explain what Philippians chapter 2 means, for example, when it speaks of Jesus Christ humbling himself and emptying himself, as it were, when he came to this earth. And that's something that's called the kenosis theory from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. And the idea there that some people have taught that Jesus divested himself of his divine attributes when he came to the earth. I do not believe that at all. I think every divine attribute that Jesus had when he stepped out of heaven and came to the earth, he possessed every single one of those divine attributes here on the earth. That does not mean that he did not self-limit himself at times in his human form, but he was in no way diminished or lacking anything that he had when he was at the right hand of God the Father, when he entered into this human experience, it was simply in the way that he exercised those various uh, attributes that he continued to possess. And I think it's important for us to understand as well. And then the sinlessness of Christ is important in light of his humanity and his deity because the question arises then, were the temptations of Jesus Christ real temptations? Like, was it possible that he could commit a sin? And the answer is, had he committed a sin, it would have been, in effect, the suicide of the Godhead. But I absolutely believe that he was capable in his humanity of committing a sin. And if that were not so he would not have fulfilled what God the Father sent him to do, and that was to fulfill the law of God, to be tempted at every point as we are, yet to be without sin, and to be victorious over sin. So if the temptation wasn't real, it would have been a pseudo-victory. It would not have been a genuine victory over sin. But when he was tempted, he overcame that temptation, and there was no guile, there was no deceit, there was no sin in him whatsoever. And he was willing to submit himself to that temptation and identify with our weakness. And that's why the writer of Hebrews talks about finding help in time of our own weakness because of the sympathetic and empathetic heart of Jesus interacting with those whom he saves. And I understand that there's some mystery in all of that, But I also understand that none of us can fully comprehend the viciousness and the weight of the 
temptation and the evil that came against Jesus Christ on this earth. You think about just the example of his temptation in the wilderness when the enemy came to him and he was in a weakened physical state having fasted. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when the enemy came against him, it was a full-on assault. And you have to believe and understand that that assault continued throughout the life of Jesus all the way to that point when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's struggling, he's wrestling with the reality of what's about to happen. And he's about to give his life on the cross and he's about to bear the weight of the sins of the world. And even in that moment, he's feeling that enemy and that evil coming against him. And yet he never gave in, ever. And the sinlessness of Christ is and was necessary for our salvation. And that brings us to the death of Christ. The death of Christ being the the centerpiece of all of this, the purpose for which he came. All four Gospels record the death of Christ, which is uh, interpreted in advance by Christ himself as a death that was meant for the forgiveness of sins, the establishment of a new covenant, the defeat of Satan, and the deliverance of God's people. So the heart of Christ's teaching on the matter became the authoritative teaching for the apostles. And you might not be aware of this as a subject. I actually wasn't aware of it until I interacted with it in a doctoral seminar. The whole idea of what is the kerygma. Okay, the word caruso uh, in the scripture means to proclaim. So we would think, because we believe the Bible, that the content of what was proclaimed was true and delivered from God himself. It was fixed content based on historical events. So in other words, the person, the work, the death, the resurrection, the whole deal was what actually happened. And the apostles proclaimed what had been delivered to them by Jesus himself. And then of course, Paul as an apostle out of due time. And the content of the kerygma is the embodiment of who Jesus is and what he has done. So if you were to ask me, what is the gospel? I might talk to you about the meta narrative of God's story, that there is a God who created, that he loved the world that he created, that he loved his people who he created, but sin entered in. And when sin entered in, the predicament of man was that he was lost, separated from God. And if there wasn't an intervention, and if it wasn't for God doing something, to deliver, to rescue, we would be eternally and hopelessly lost. But God sent his son Jesus, and what did Jesus do? He lived, and he died, and he rose from the dead. So if you were to ask me to distill the content of the kerygma in the gospel into two verses in the Bible, I would give you 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And this is the heart of what he's done. So the death of Christ is the understanding of what he did to take away our sin. That God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it's enough for us to understand that 
in its most basic form because it points us to Jesus in whom our faith is to be exercised. So we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. It's not something that you could do. So the grace is a gift of God. The faith is the vehicle through which the grace is received. And God brings us to spiritual life, even though we were spiritually dead. So that's the death of Christ. But then also, I've already referenced here the resurrection of Christ. Not only do all four Gospels reference the death of Christ, but all four Gospels record the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20. He, of course, appeared to Mary Magdalene, uh, to another Mary, to Cephas, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to James, to ten disciples, to Thomas and ten other disciples, to seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, to more than 500 people, and then to the 11 at his ascension. And then finally he appeared to the Apostle Paul, who became, of course, the Apostle. And there have been attacks, as you might imagine, just like there have been attacks on the very nature of Christ, there have been attacks on the resurrection of Christ from the very beginning. And they run the gamut. Some just disbelieve any kind of supernaturalism at all and say that, Uh, naturalism rules the day and therefore this was an impossibility but the theological interpretation of Christ's bodily resurrection is central to the Christian life and hope if Christ was not raised from the dead we are the most pitiable people of all Paul makes that very clear after he gives that content of the kerygma after he gives the heart of the gospel he says we're the most pathetic people of all of this is not true But it is true. Christ has been raised from the dead. And because he's been raised from the dead, he will also return someday to judge the living and the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus is central to our own resurrection. That We are raised from death to life. And I think even the way we think about death is so framed by the death and resurrection of Jesus that it's an essential understanding. So you understand that when a believer passes from this world to the next and they die and their physical life on this earth ends, their soul goes to be in the presence of of God, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about even the experience of the thief on the cross, the one who believed, uh, and how simple his reply to Jesus was, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. You see how we sometimes complicate the gospel? And we confuse it, and we don't communicate it as we should because we've put a lot of other stuff together with it rather than just the simplicity of Christ. I think that's sort of what Paul was talking about in the church at Corinth when he said, I have determined to proclaim nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've determined just to give you the the main idea here because this is central to everything that we believe. And that thief on the cross, he was with Jesus that very day in paradise. So while our soul goes to be in the presence of God, our body remains on this earth in whatever form it is. 
be it someone that's lost at sea and they don't know where the body is or someone that dies in a plane crash and there's no body to be found or a body that's been carefully preserved and laid in the grave in a, in a casket, those bodies will be raised. And they'll either be raised in life to be reunited with the soul, to be received as a glorified body in the new heaven and the new earth, or they'll be raised in judgment to be forever separated from God. So the resurrection is a core part of our understanding of the Christian faith and how we talk. And even when we baptize somebody, referring to that beautiful picture of being raised from death to life. And that's why we can stand at the graveside of a loved one who's gone, who has died, and we can say, this is not the end. This is not all there is. This is only the beginning. And with that, God gives us great hope. And then the ascension and the exaltation of Christ in Luke chapter 24 and then Acts chapter 1, Luke records for us the historical fact and nature of Jesus' ascension. The language seems to imply that Jesus ascended bodily, um, and he ascended into heaven. And we don't know exactly how all that happened. That was a supernatural event. But Luke makes it crystal clear what the theological value is of what Jesus did and what it means. It was not just Jesus going somewhere. It was Jesus going to be exalted. It was Jesus going to claim his position at the right hand of God, exalted in keeping with the Davidic hope and the idea that he currently reigns over the universe as we read in part in that introduction in Ephesians. And he is head over all things pertaining to the church. He sent the Holy Spirit. He intercedes on our behalf. As the head of the church, he's the chief shepherd. He's the one to whom we look. He's the one in whom we find our hope and our promise. He's the one as the exalted Savior to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, even from, either from a position of redemption or in a perspective of judgment. And the position of redemption is the place you want to be in. But as we think about the exalted Christ, it should transform our worship. That the work of Christ continues on perpetually on behalf of those that he's redeemed. And that the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God is active in us, changing us, so that we would be more like Jesus who lived and died and now lives again and is exalted and is interceding on our behalf. And we're desiring to grow to be more like him. And in the meantime, we await the return of Christ. The Bible, of course, predicting that Jesus will return suddenly and bodily with great glory for all to see. And at that time, he will judge the living and the dead He will establish the kingdom in its fullest sense and we will experience his glory in a very real way. And these are essentials. We don't know the timing. 
We can differ on the timing of what we believe is going to take place, but we've got to believe that Jesus is coming again physically, just like he was here the first time, and that he's going to come, and when he comes, he's going to come as the judge, and he's the one who's going to rule eternally. So we await the return of Christ. In fact, one of the five crowns that are mentioned specifically in the New Testament is the crown that will be received by those who love his appearing, who long for his return, who long for the very presence of Jesus. And that ought to change how we live. It ought to make us think about our own lives and the value of how we're living and how we're investing ourselves and whether or not we're leading others to know him as well. The next segment I want to point out here are what have been referred to as the three offices of Christ. While there were early church fathers who spoke about the different offices of Christ, it was actually John Calvin in his institutes who systematized the idea of a threefold office of Christ. You've heard it, I'm sure, prophet, priest, and king. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted that God would send another prophet like him to the people of Israel. And both John and Peter understood Jesus to be that prophet. The term prophet's not found in that sense in the epistles, but it is obvious that the consummate prophet, one who gave revelation from God and was himself the quintessential revelation from God, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is an important point here because there are many in the world who would affirm that, yes, indeed, Jesus Christ was a prophet. In fact, the Muslims will agree with you readily that Jesus was a prophet and that Jesus is to be revered. But to see Jesus as a prophet only and not in the fullness of his identity of who he came as in the flesh, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh is to diminish the very nature of God. And Jesus was not only prophesied about, but he was the one who came and made manifest the very presence of God among people. The idea of Jesus as priest is a little bit easier probably even for us to get a grasp on because we understand the framework of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant... God had prescribed how the people were to approach him in worship. He had given them the law. He told them about constructing the tabernacle and then the temple. And they went through the prescribed rituals and the prescribed uh, celebrations and and feasts and sacrifices, all in obedience to God. And all of that was a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ. And that's why it had to be repeated over and over and over. But when Jesus came... He came as the once and for all high priest who went in to the holiest of holies, not offering up a sacrifice from a bull or a goat, but offering up the sacrifice of himself, serving as it was as our mercy seat, that our sin was laid upon him and that the high priest offered himself in our place. And again, His role as priest is continual in the regard that he's interceding for us, that we have confidence to come before the throne of God even now with boldness and receive grace in our time of need. All of this is because of Jesus. 
So if you want to get a full picture of who he is as the priest, you need to read Hebrews. And I think Hebrews is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. And it pulls the pieces together in a very clear way, a very obvious way, making so many references to the Old Testament way of doing things that as a believer with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's almost impossible to miss out on the symbolism and the importance of what God is teaching through that. Finally, Jesus fulfilled the office of king. Now, in contrast to the great Israelite kings or the king like David, the rule of Christ is not limited. You understand that any earthly king, even if their kingdom is broad, even if they're a powerful monarch over vast regions of the world, their rule is limited and their rule is not uh, without end. When we think about the rule of Jesus in his kingdom, he is the consummate king who rules over all of the universe and all of eternity. He always rules wisely, fairly, lovingly, attentively, and is the one who exacts justice with perfection. So he rules as the God-man over the entire cosmos, and he will deal definitively with all obstacles to his deserved reign and he will be victorious so even the kingdom language is important language for us as christians there have been different ways that people have thought about the kingdom of god in the past or the kingdom of heaven from what i can understand from a new testament perspective the kingdom is present and the kingdom is future the kingdom was manifested when christ made his entrance into the world and through his teaching and and through his exacted reign in real time on the earth, and yet the kingdom is still to come. So that present future mindset keeps us understanding that what we are doing as believers is not without effect. So what you're doing when you live for God and you give a good testimony for him and you're obedient to his word and you're faithful in the world, And by doing those things, you're proclaiming your faith in the eternal God. You are contributing to the kingdom of God advancing. And that kingdom is going to come to a culmination. And it's going to be realized in Christ. And then it's going to be manifested for all of eternity. And that's why Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16 refers to Jesus as the king of kings. He's a king like no other king. He's the one who will reign eternally. So it's our privilege to be a part of the kingdom that he rules and reigns over and to know that our life now, even if it seems insignificant, even if it seems like we're not sure what our purpose is from time to time, even we're not sure what the outcome is going to be of these things that we do, we just methodically and faithfully keep on keeping on. And we know that God is working out his eternal plan And by his grace, we get to be a little small part of it. And then someday when we're in the presence of the Lord and we're in the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus is in his position ruling and reigning over all, it's going to make sense. And we're going to say collectively, thank you, Lord. You're worthy. You're the one that we've been worshiping all this time. 
And now we get to be here with you forever and forever. Savior, Redeemer, Ruler, now and eternally. That's who God the Son is. And this is why it's so significant for us to understand his identity, his work in the world, our participation in it, and what's coming in the future. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Jesus, we are in awe of who you are, and I feel so inadequate tonight even to begin to introduce this subject, but I pray that our study of you in your word would only give us a greater hunger to know and to understand better who you are and what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do in our lives. And I pray that we would not just hold this in our own heart and our own lives, but that we would be stirred to share with others about you, that you're the one who saves, you're the one who rescues, you're the one who redeems. And for that, we say thank you. And I pray you would continue to sharpen our minds as we think beyond surface level, that we'd not just be satisfied with believing what we've been told, but that we would dig deep into the word and really think through the implications of what all these things mean. And as we do that, it would continue to build that strong framework in our lives of biblical truth that would exalt you, that would bring glory to the Father, and that would advance the kingdom here on this earth. So, Lord, bless us to that end. We bring you praise and glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.